News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm producer Alex Brooklyn. Today we're welcoming a new person into the FAQ family. Her name is Gwen Hogan. Gwen Gwen Hogan. Hello. She's going to be doing some producing and reporting for us. Today's episode is really, really good. So good. It's all about the Board of Elections voting in New York State and why it sucks. And to talk about that, we're joined with Michael Michael Benjamin Benjamin. of the New York Post. Post. New York Post. And I, Anson Harry Siegel, talked with Professor Chrissy Greer, who's out because she's on her way to Georgia to uh, discuss the election there, where the rules are great and the outcome for the governor's race is a complete mess. We talk about everything else you might need to know going on in, in New, New York, York City this week, from Chapo to Amazon. Chapazon. Chapazon. F-A-Q. Voting is important. In New York, though, it never seems to go very well. Take last week's election. The sites of scanners down, not working. This site, which is our largest poll site in the district, has four of five scanners down at the moment. It was a mess. Don't drop your ballot. Stand and let it be scanned. There were long lines, jammed ballot scanners. It's coming up to machines. Too many ballots in the machine. That's double what the normal length of a ballot is. Voting in NYC is horrible, and everyone talks about how horrible it is. Why is it so horrible? Well, to understand that, you gotta go back. Way, way back. Cue Victorian music. In the 1800s, Democrats ran the elections. Tammany Democrats. So you know there was a big margin for what we'll call error there. Then in the 1890s, to make it more fair, each county got to appoint two commissioners. One selected by a Democratic Party boss and one from a Republican Party boss. It's still like that today with bipartisan graft. So when things go wrong, there's really no one to blame, at least no one you've ever heard of. These Board of Election guys aren't experts in the science of elections. They're party loyalists, getting sweet paychecks. They appear in public only when they need to apologize and prostrate themselves after some election mess. There are limits to human ability. These days, the biggest bad thing may not be the political machine. It may be the voting machines. And that goes back to 2000, the election, the recount, and the Supreme Court decision that eventually gave us President George W. Bush. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. Stand by, stand by, stand by, Florida. Back to the too close to call column. Yeah, Uh, you have people protesting outside. Supreme Court decision that eventually gave us President George W. Bush. While I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I offer my my concession. My concession. To stop that from happening again, the Help America Vote Act of 2002 passed. One of the things it did was require everyone across the country to get new high-tech machines. New York City took a really long time to comply. They finally got there in 2010 with optical scan machines to replace the solid old ka-ching Weber ones. And then everything promptly went to hell. The executive director of the Board of Elections got fired just after the primary that year, and Bloomberg flipped his shit. It's a terribly run organization that should be ashamed of saying exactly what they've done. Everybody in this city, every city agency, has an obligation to do more with less, and they certainly don't have a record that they should be proud of. Then, the Board of Elections went three years without any executive director until they finally appointed this guy, Michael Ryan, who's still in charge today. I started out uh, working for the city of New York as a probation officer. Uh, Later went on to to serve uh, in the Giuliani administration in the criminal justice coordinator's office. 
oversaw all of the criminal justice agencies uh, for the city. What's the first thing he does? He brings the old lever machines out of retirement. He says that's the only way to have that year's primary elections work at all without the whole damn thing breaking down. Since then, lots of bad things have happened under his watch. Like in 2016, when 200,000 people were illegally purged from the voter rolls. Oops. Oops. After last week's debacle with busted machines and long lines across the city, leaders are calling for Mike Ryan's head. City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. Corey Johnson. And he says it's time for change at the Board of Elections. We need to get a uh, competent leadership team at the Board of Elections to actually ensure that moving forward, all the testing is done before Election Day to make sure these machines don't get down. Mike Ryan and the bosses are trying once again to just wait out the anger. That's why we're here with Michael Benjamin, an associate editor of the New York Post editorial page. And before that, he was a state assemblyman. And before that, he was a member of the Bronx Board of Elections. So he's the perfect guy to tell us all about how this hustle works. He even has an idea on how to fix it. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Michael Benjamin. So we had a really uncompetitive election, but it was really terrible anyways for lots of voters. And this seems to happen every, uh, every election. What's going on here? It's a, a number of different things. Uh, the board structure, the way they hire the, the poll workers overwhelming numbers of people coming to the polls that they don't really expect. Which board are we talking about? <laughs> the New York City Board of Elections. And these guys are famous, right? You'd recognize them if they passed on the street? Well, because I, I, I'm a groupie, so I, I would know them. And I'm also a former um, deputy clerk at the Bronx Board. They're not prepared for elections and people turning out? How uh, do we get that? It's, it's, it's the craziest kind of thing. And, and what, I, what I talked about in my column the other day was that most people don't realize it's not the Board of Elections. There are five. Actually, there are six. You have the Central Board, and then each borough has its own borough office, which is run by both the Republican and Democratic commissioner. And then the staffs are all split down the middle, Republicans, Democrats, even to the techs. The tech must be Republican and Democrat. It's the craziest system. So break this down. Who's picking the Republican commissioner? Who's picking the Democratic positioner? And who's signing off on that? It's all being signed off on by the party bosses. The uh, Democratic county leader, the Republican county leaders in, 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 in all five boroughs, pick their people, and basically they pick the folks who get hired. So before we get too deep into the weeds, we're talking basically about a straight patronage pit operation, right? The only one that exists and is left in New York. And you're talking about a decent handful of six-figure jobs? Just about, and then the overpaying jobs, the, the thirty to $50,000 jobs, you know, the, the poll workers, the election board workers. Nice work if you can get it. It's fine work. And you can get it. If you try. I got connections, too. It's a lot that's going on. It's the only thing that political leaders, parties have, that local clubs have to dole out to their members. I mean, I can say so because I benefited from it. I mean, I've been attacked and I'm criticized by my former colleagues because they say I'm biting the hand that's fed me. Well, I'm just informing the public of what the reality is behind it. And based on my own personal experience and how I tried to run the board as, you know, bipartisan as possible without letting the politics interfere with getting the job done and recognizing how human error actually creates many of the problems that, that we see. And we seem to have these problems every single election. So this year it was the uh, optical scanners again and the two-page ballot and all this stuff. Workers uh, at the polling stations who aren't particularly well-trained, uh, screw-ups with announcements for when you should vote and where, uh, voter purges. You know, this seems outrageously bad. It does, and, and the public has right to be angry with what, what's happening because the politicians, the elected leaders, the mayor, others have not taken full control of the issue, and they haven't addressed the root causes, the root being the county leaders 
and the members of the state legislature. When I was in the assembly, four of the five Democratic county leaders were members of the assembly. And, and those are the folks who actually help write the laws. And if they're not willing to change the state law to make it easier for, one, for, for people to vote, and two, for the process to be something that's a little more professionally driven and is more accountable, nothing is really going to happen. So when the mayor gets up and starts pontificating about wanting reform, but not talking to the folks who are most responsible, he's lying to the public. So Bloomberg at a couple of points said, these people are morons and they're disenfranchising people. And you can see him like visibly shaking angry. Uh, de Blasio has been a little more gentle, but is clearly unhappy with this. Corey Johnson called for the current executive director to, uh, to step down or get fired. What could these guys do if they wanted to do something more than complain? Well, they could have, they could have sought to implement the Department of Investigation's you know, recommendations, both under Bloomberg and under Mayor de Blasio. There have been recommendations, and the board has been slow to implement them. And the way you get to implement it is to get Albany to change the law, have a real honest discussion to change the law. And that hasn't happened. They'd rather go on television, go on radio, go on Twitter, and lambast the board rather than talking directly to, to the leaders who are most responsible for it. Change the law how? My, in, my, in my column, I talk about sort of bifurcating things. You would still have the 10 commissions under the state law who would rule on election law matters. But when it comes to running the elections, it should be a nonpartisan, professional staff, that is allowed to make decisions without getting the commissioners involved. I think that would help things run a little more smoothly, and you could weed out some of the poll workers and other staff who really shouldn't be in those positions. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wins this stunning victory. It's a big story, and people don't notice that Joe Crowley remains the boss of Queens. He remains the man in control of a lot of this stuff, right, even having been voted out of office. Is there a way that you could change this so that that we could have some politician who's accountable instead of some board and some county leaders and who the hell even knows? You do. I do. But, you know, most New Yorkers don't know who these people are. It's just sort of in the ether. Uh, There they go again. Yeah, well, my suggestion would be to make the mayor responsible for the executive director of the Board of Elections and the executive staff. And then you could let, let the political leaders select the board of commissioners who then rule on election law matters and only election law matters, whether it's petitions, it's uh, what the ballot looks like, those sort of things that are in the law, they should continue to do, but they should have no relationship to hiring of people because that has led to, to the rampant nepotism that's at the board of elections. It's led to the hiring of people who are incompetent and it's led to the politicalization of even repairing the machines. And that's on election day, the problem you have, poll workers who one are the poorly trained or didn't attend the training or the older ones who went to the training but still do what they think is right and do whatever they want. So you have poll workers who've asked for a photo ID, which is not required under New York City law. And that's something they've been doing for years in some places. It, it leads to problems where in, in some neighborhoods that transition, you have poll workers who are white and, and voters who are Asian, are being, the Asian voters being questioned and asked for voter ID. And that's seen as a way to sort of suppress the, the, the Asian vote. And, and that's unfair and, and that, that's improper. Then you have others who sort of are only there for the $20 paycheck. And so they sort of sleepwalk through the process while lines back up. Part of the problem we've had with, with these new machines is that they take up much more space. Mike Ryan, executive director of, of the Board of Elections, is, is correct. The machines take up space, much more space than the old analog Ka-ching. lever machines. And every time I make a lever slam, because you need the privacy booths, you've got three or four voting machines, and then you have to have the tables, of course, for voters to come to sign it, to sign in to the registration book. And as the elections have become more, in a sense, consequential, and more voters are interested in elections, they're coming out to vote. And some of the polling places are rather small. You know, they're either school cafeterias or church um, bingo or basement halls. 
very small spaces where you have to accommodate hundreds of people early in the morning and then sometimes late at night or middle of the afternoon, and that, that leads to problems. The board also has problems getting spaces in which to run elections. So the, a number of things have sort of come together to create this perfect storm of problems at the Board of Elections. But the problems, as, as, as I believe, wouldn't exist if we changed the system. I mean, the, the suggestion that we have early voting is helpful, but it means having to then set up poll sites fewer poll sites than on election day, which leads to crowds. So you'll still have the same problem. So unless you address the, the, the organizational structure of the Board of Elections, you're not really going to change much. How would the uh, county bosses uh, and other people who are vested in the present system react if, uh, if there is a cent to that? I don't think that's going to happen. I don't believe that's, that's going to happen. One, you still have county leaders who are members of the legislature, members of the uh, state assembly. The assembly speaker himself is a former Bronx Democratic county leader. Uh, and he criticized me for my previous um, public statements about the Board of Elections and how to reform it. They have a stake in the system, and, and they have people in places who can block some of the reforms. Yes, they're going to go ahead and do the voter access reforms. They're going to do the online registration. They can do all those things that are important and that are simple, but does not address the follow-ups that have been the problem with the Board of Elections because they don't want to let go of the power and the dwindling patronage that exists at the Board of Elections. Can we, should we have mayoral control so that there's someone to say, hey, fuck you, you screwed up this election, instead of letting every mayor say, who are these people? Someone should uh, do something to fix this stuff. Yes, there should be mayoral control where the mayor can be pointed to as the person responsible. As we look at education, the same thing, I think, when it, when it comes to voting. But it's, it's still nonpartisan non administration. Excuse me? Will there be? Will I, there I know be? there should be. We're editorial board. I don't, there no, should, there I don't believe. I don't, I don't believe so. Um, it was reported yesterday that uh, Frank Sedio, the Brooklyn leader, and, and my fellow Bronx side, Marcus Crespo, an assemblyman from the Bronx, and are both opposed to the reforms that the mayor has talked about. They don't want to let go. Um, they're going to do, as I said, the cosmetic stuff, voter access, um, early voting, that sort of thing. But they're not going to address the serious problems of, of the administration of the Board of Elections that, that leads to these problems you know, almost year in and, and year out. What are the politics of getting the machines repaired and who's getting the, uh, who's getting the money there? The machines have already been bought. They're, they're, I believe they're, what, they're in, in the 10th or 12th year of, of their life. And according to Mike Ryan, they're, they're, they're already obsolete. But when it comes to repair, the repairs are minor ones that are done by the Board of Elections technical staff. The more complicated stuff is done by the, I guess, the, I, don't know, I can't remember the name of the company that has a contract for the machines. But, but they do yearly, they, they do regular repairs and, and uh, other kinds of maintenance work. When we had the old machines, the Shoop Company, or the folks who do elections, who do the machines, would come in once or twice a year to go over the work that our our guys would do at the Board of Elections to make sure things are up and running and running running properly. Now, I don't want to leave it with, with the impression that the old machines worked properly. They didn't. They had they had their own set of problems. Now, when I was at the Bronx Board of Elections, I would be on, on top of my guys, the techs, to make sure the machines had all the levers, everything was in its place. Pull the lever back to the left, back to the left. And come election day, I get a report that there were machines without levers. There are machines that don't have proper supplies. And I wound up like pulling my head trying to figure out what happened. And these things would, would almost invariably happen, again, because I think levels of human error. I don't think it's, it, it was any sort of deliberate sabotage. I mean, when machines are being transported by trucks, trucks bounce up and down in New York City's pothole-filled streets, and, and things, things can happen. One of my political mentors, uh, Ramon Velez, um, once said to me that a single man with a screwdriver can turn an election. Well, I mean, <clears throat> there is this kind of nostalgia that I certainly have for an old uh, 
lever-operated, gears-turning, a click that punctuates the satisfaction of their I voted. You have to let everyone know you exist. You have to register your existence. Otherwise, you just don't count. What I saw this election day was a bunch of people holding sopping wet papers, trying to feed them into a machine as they kind of curled up and the wet paper became pulpish. And, and again, it, it's a confluence of, of state law, federal law. The federal government, after the 2001 debacle in Florida, insisted that state systems change and go towards more optical scanners and, and, and that sort of thing. And then advocates who didn't trust digital voting wanted a paper trail. So we got the worst of two worlds. At the very end of the pinball industry, because all the companies that made it there, which were manufacturing industrial com- companies, they all started making slots because that's where the money is. But they tried to do Pinball 3000, and it was half digital and half analog, and uh, broke down all the goddamn time and cost $2, and was just no fun to play. And that, to me, is the optical machines. Glenn Hogan, who's here, uh, spent yesterday spending seven and a half scintillating minutes with the men and women of the Board of Elections. That's right. How was it? Well, seven and a half minutes was the sort of duration of the meeting. This was the first meeting after the debacle last week. So I was expecting a lot of discussion, maybe some critique of what had happened, a little bit of unpacking, but that didn't happen. One commissioner said one thing about the election, which was that Mike Ryan, who is the executive director, did a great job. Mike Ryan is not the problem. Mike Ryan is more knowledgeable than anybody I know about elections in Manhattan, in New York City, than anybody else. He knows the workings of the BOE better than anybody. You could not find a better executive director than Mike Ryan. And then the meeting was over. (laughs) It seemed like they were kind of blaming everyone and their mother. Can you run down the list of, for us, just like like the everything that was blamed? And and then you said that they did, though, take responsibility for one thing. That's right. So the things that were blamed, the external factors, we have, one, the two-page ballot. That was like the first thing that caused this mayhem. Mm -hmm. Um, The two-page ballot was the fault of the Mayor's Charter Revision Commission who came up with these ballot questions. They didn't settle them until uh, beginning of September. So the Board of Elections said they had very little time to prepare. They can't just add additional scanners on the fly like that because everything has to be approved by this third-party monitor who's overseeing the ADA lawsuit. Two, the printing company. Three, outstanding litigation over certain ballot items. Four, uh, the rain made it worse. Five, somebody else helped Voter me. turnout. Voter turnout, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was funny. So it's, uh, <clears throat> it's the mayor's fault because he gave... Too many options to the voters. It's the old, uh, as uh, Harry was saying before, it's the oldies' fault because the font had to be big. It's the printer's fault because why was it the printer's fault? One of our print vendors told us that they couldn't print the the ballots with the perforated ballot. And at the last second, we had to divide work up. Instead of having it be divided between three printers, we had to divide it between two printers. And that all happened at the last minute. It's people with disabilities' uh, fault because to be compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, they have to have very specific polling sites. And it's... um Human nature... For people wanting to come out and participate, that's a real issue. Oh, right. And, Voter uh, turnout. And God for, uh, for the rain, obviously. Right. But they and also people. left out one important factor. I'm oh. sorry. State law and state lawmakers. The law requires a full-face ballot. That's, that's one problem. The second problem is that the legislature won't let them change it because members of the assembly are afraid that if you go to a, a different system, voters will only vote for the top, top, top of the ticket, which is either governor or president, and forget about them 
the legislature and the, uh, and, and the judges. And so in terms of the two things that they did take responsibility for and saw that went bad, one is more education, a bigger education campaign about the two-page ballot, about the ripping of the ballot. They felt they didn't start that early enough. And the second thing has to do with jam-ups. So basically, the Board of Elections policy up until this point was your scanner jams, call a technician, the technician is deployed to fix it. What will happen now is that they'll try, they'll give site coordinators and certain poll workers training on how to clear these routine jams that happen towards the top of the scanner. And that way, they'll be cleaning these jams more quickly. This is your dad like, hey, can you come over across the, you know, from the Bronx to Brooklyn and like plug in my printer, please. Can you pull out that one sheet of paper? <laughs> it's bad. It's real bad. You know, um, being like, hey, you need to be educated about this two-page ballot, you know, on Saturday with the election on Tuesday. Um, what you need to do is fill out both pages and then separate the pages and then feed them separately through the voting machine. I'm like, are, are you kidding me? That, two- that's your education? The other thing that is a piece of that education is that when you tear the ballot, that edge is harder to feed through the scanner. So I was covering this for the month leading up to the election. I did not know that until the day of, like some caller on the Brian Lehrer show mentioned it. So like they weren't saying you have to feed the smooth end in, except three edges were rough because New York state law also requires the ballots to be printed on a pad and ripped off. All this to be said, we've been talking for half an hour about like tear sheets and all these very small, minute factors that basically add up to one thing. It's really hard to vote in New York. It's not that it's hard. It's just it's, 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 it's followed up because of a confluence of election law. I wanted a fully digital machine. But you had advocates who wanted a paper trail because they were afraid somebody could hack and change the election results. And, and many Republicans felt, felt the same way, too. And colleagues who didn't want a, a fully digital uh, version because they were afraid that voters would skip voting for the legislature. So they had their own self-interest in mind. And that trumped, in my view, practicality and what would work for, for voters. And so, of course, you're going to have these kinds of problems occurring until we make significant change. I think I mean, Mike Ryan has talked about possibly getting new machines. But then that opens up the set legislature again to having to decide and then having to make sure it complies with federal law and then having advocates come into Albany and complaining about uh, the need for paper trails so we can, we can avoid Russians hacking the system and others hacking it for nefarious reasons. So maybe the activist types who really want to see change in 2020 will start challenging in Democratic primaries those calcified uh, legislators who, who fail to change the system and make that maybe a campaign issue. Because it's not just opposing Donald Trump or opposing his policies. It's how do you make government better for New Yorkers locally? And, and, and as they always say, you know, all politics is, is local. That's a beautiful last word. Please make all of our listeners smart about the things they need to know in like 30 words or less. What's happening and how they should feel about it. Amazon. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> to the left. To the left, to the left. Here's everything else you need to know about what's going on in New York City this week. We got Amazon in Queens, El Chapo in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And maybe they're going to get rid of the public advocate's office altogether? Getting rid of, eliminating the public advocate position, uh, at least legislatively by the city council, is, is absurd. Um, the council has empowered a charter commission 
look at a number of issues, any, any issue they want to. These four members of the city council could easily have said, well, we want the panel to look at it, and they, and they could go testify about the necessity of, of getting rid of that office and, and, and giving a, a, f a full answer, rather than having a, a legis another legislative body want to eliminate that office and then pass legislation to eliminate it, but then have it uh, approved by voters. El, El Chapo in Brooklyn. 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 You know what's cool? We have Victoria Bekempis here, who's been covering the trial for the Daily Beast in Brooklyn for the last three days. She's going to give us a rundown on what the story is. So the trial against uh, accused Mexican drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman uh, began in earnest this week in Brooklyn federal court. Prosecutors in their opening statements uh, painted a picture of El Chapo as nothing short of a criminal mastermind. Uh, their opening salvo was something to the effect of money, cash, murder. Money, money, cash, money, murder. cash, murder. Something that could be the refrain of a rap song. As the openings continued, it was a lot of what you would expect. Uh, the prosecution didn't offer too much new information than what we already knew. But the real twist was when El Chapo's defense attorneys um, had their opportunity to present their view of the case, which was a, uh, a, a, a one way to put it would be a conspiracy theory. Like the world is conspiring against El Chapo to bring him down? Kind of, Did, yes. This is really sounding more and more like the Wilson Fisk plotline in Daredevil. Uh, and if, for those of you who don't know Wilson Fisk, it's a kingpin. Ever since his unjust conviction on racketeering charges, our client has maintained his innocence and fought to clear his good name. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the conviction of Wilson Fisk. And Wilson Fisk is once again a free man. The people in power decided to tear me down. To tear me down with false allegations. They sent someone to frame me. Daredevil. Yes, so El Chapo's lawyer, Jeffrey Lichtman, a uh, very well-renowned lawyer. Lickman? You know, it might be Lickman, but, you know, fatigue, pronunciation, you know. Yeah, I was just wondering. According to him, El Chapo is not the real leader of the Sinaloa cartel. It's actually this other guy. Daredevil! Ismael El Mayo, last name of several names escaping me right now. And uh, in sum and substance, what Lichtman is saying is that uh, El Chapo was set up. They sent someone to frame me. Hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes has been given by uh, El Mayo to Mexico's uh, present and former president. And that is why El Mayo has been able to stay on the lam, despite having a $5 million bounty on his head uh, for several years. So, okay, so those were opening pretty much statements. Um, we've got he's a kingpin versus uh, he's a victim of conspiracy. Yes. Um, and then, so where are we now? Wednesday afternoon, we actually got to see testimony from El Mayo's brother. El Mayo's brother provided very detailed insight into how the Sinaloa cartel worked. You know, you would think that a massive drug empire would have some, you know, sexiness, like the movie Blow or something. But it's actually just a lot like any big corporation you wouldn't want to work for. 
there's a hierarchy. There are the leaders, sub-leaders, um, the Health workers. benefits? Health benefits? What are they like? <laughs> and, and I'm guessing that, you know, whatever outboarding or pivoting they might have for employees is, uh, you know, probably going to relate to death in some way. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a lot uh, like working for any company in corporate America except for the, you know, trafficking billions in cocaine across uh, international it, lines. And, you know, if your numbers don't do good or if you screw up at work, someone will kill you. One moment that perhaps it's cliche to say, but reminded me a lot of The Wire. <laughs> uh, he, uh, toward the end of his testimony, he talked about how his favorite ways of communicating with his brother El Mayo and uh, El Chapo were uh, with uh, Nextels, you know, those weird beepy paging phones that used to Dude, exist? I love those. I used to exist. That's like early 2000s right there. That's kind of amazing. And they would only be on speakerphone all the time, and they made that sound. Dude. What was that sound? Yeah. And like you knew if somebody, and it was always bike messengers, you knew somebody had a Nextel <laughs> because they were like, thought of Nextel, you know, and the noise, and it was just such a specific memory. And I also felt very old because someone who was next to me was like, what's a Nextel? And this person is learned and well-read and cultured, and I was like, wow. Like, no. This is- I'm sorry. You just said someone was learned and cultured if they don't know what a Nextel is? What's a Nextel? <laughs> All right. I'm not going to insult people who don't know what Nextel is because my new favorite person... <laughs> Gwen Hogan just asked what an Nextel was. So now I can't go on the rant I was going to go on. Um, but he also liked payphones. He was also convinced that payphones were um, also among the most secure communication. Yeah, payphones, that's how I used to deal drugs. <laughs> LOL, JK, JK. Speaking of cocaine, and I don't think the CIA, like, what are people snorting to, uh, to say, let's give the world's third biggest company a couple billion dollars to do the thing that they pretty much might have done without that money? We got, we got Amazon, Amazon and Queens. Yeah, if you, t- if you discuss Amazon. that with Amazon, you discuss that with the, the governor and the mayor, they'll tell you that's not the case. They had, to, they had to oversell. I mean, the governor said to me, well, they could have gotten to New Jersey. New Jersey was offering $6 billion. I don't know where you got the figure from. It's but, twice the subsidy that uh, that Virginia is paying yes. for for the same size thing. And allegedly, mm-hmm. and, and both the governor and the mayor said it's nothing new. These things already existed. So why were we competing to offer what already is on the books? And, and in had secrecy, they, they would have gotten... cutting off all the local officials. And they're going to claim it's because uh, Amazon had an NDA. Well, you're public officers. The public officers law says the public comes first. So why would you even bother signing an NDA with, with a private company? Both the mayor. And, and, and the governor, we believe, the, the Post believes, you know, abdicated their responsibilities because neither one wanted to be said to be responsible for having lost Amazon. And that's an absurd, absurd line of thinking. Hey, so I'm on the phone now with, uh, with Professor Chrissy Greer, who's on her way to Georgia to talk about the election. And that's a state where there are terrific rules, unlike New York, and a very competitive election unlike New York, and where one of the candidates for governor, Stacey Abrams, who's this close to becoming the nation's first black female governor, is up against a Republican who'd also been the uh, referee counting the votes, Brian Kemp, and working to suppress them as Secretary of State. So, so Chrissy, you've been, uh, you've been pretty involved here. Do uh, you want to tell us how we got here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's amazing that we're even in this position right now. I mean, I don't know how many 
uh, Americans, but especially how many Southerners would have thought that we would have a, a black female governor or, or a black female Democratic candidate um, this close to winning the state of Georgia. When I went down there a few months ago, and, and just I did some focus groups and doing some research for my own work, but um, I interviewed lots of black female Georgians, and one of the, the main things they told me was essentially, hey, Yankee, like, you don't understand the South. Like, this is, this is Georgia. They're never going to elect a black person statewide. They're never going to elect a woman statewide, especially a black woman. And something in either her candidacy, the fact that she's kind of brilliant, or the fact that just the culture of Georgia has changed with out-migration and diverse groups coming in, I'm not sure, but somehow we're, we're within a few thousand votes of a possible recount. I think what's really fascinating is that because so much drama is going on in Florida with Broward County yet again, many people keep saying that both states are in a recount, and that's actually not correct. Florida is currently in a recount. Georgia, the fight is for a count, just a pure American, you know, constitutional right, please count my vote. And I think, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, one of the main issues with the Stacey Abrams-Brian Kemp race is largely Stacey had an uphill battle from the beginning because her opponent was literally in charge of the entire voting process. So that means all the counties that are supposed to get their machines and the processes of counting these things, he's in charge of all of that. And so... Well, he was through the election, right? He, he resigned, I think, uh, he resigned, well, he, I think, last week after the election. After the election. But, I mean, but here's the thing. He wasn't resigning to say, oh, wow, let me do the right thing. He was resigning to say, you know what? I'm governor now. And this Republican governor who's currently sitting in the seat says I'm governor now. So let's just, if I say I'm governor enough, then I'll just be governor, even though votes are still being counted. And I, I think that that's a very dangerous precedent to set when – Candidates can sort of be still be in the process of counting votes and decide, mm, you know what, Harry, I know the two of us are, you know, competing against one another, but I've counted enough votes that make me feel good, so I've, I've won now, and I'm going to resign from my job and start a transition process. And, you know, if indeed Brian Kemp wins, I have no doubt that the entire Stacey Abrams camp will follow suit. But you can't declare victory if you haven't finished counting yet. That just seems absurd. That seems like, you know, things that happen in those countries that we talk about. And slowly but surely, we're becoming more and more like one of those countries we talk about. Kemp has been pushing for a federal judge to certify the uh, the vote and, and effectively put a lid on it, right? Yes, Even wrap it up. ballots and, and whatnot coming in. And the federal judge has said no to that this week. Right. Well, this is, you know, I think also, you know, as, I, as I've been talking to my students about the various races across the country, I think this is also the importance of paying attention to who becomes judges. And so when the Democrats were, you know, obviously very upset about the Kavanaugh hearings, but, you know, some other Democratic strategists were saying, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is one highly problematic individual in a larger um, process and scheme of Donald Trump appointing federal judges uh, for lifetime appointments, you know, something that the Republicans were very successful at making sure Barack Obama did not do during his tenure. So we have a judge whose rules, and I don't know too, too much about this judge, but clearly this judge is looking at precedent and not partisanship, which is the point of a judge. And so that's also been, you know, sort of zooming out 30,000 feet, making sure, you know, we really stay vigilant, looking at some of these people that Trump has appointed, many of whom have never 
served in any sort of judicial capacity whatsoever. They're just friends of donors or people who share an ideology and a loyalty. I don't think that many Americans have yet wrapped their mind around sort of the magnitude of either theft and or just inappropriate anti-democratic behavior coming out of the Republican Party right now. That's in broad daylight. So I know that Georgia has some rules that New York has reason to be envious of, just in broad oh works, like uh, mail-in voting, a whole week to go to the polls. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, oftentimes Northerners look at the South still, right, and say, oh, look at them, they're so backwards. But as Malcolm X says, anything south of the Canadian border is the U.S. South. So when it comes to voting, I mean, we're New York is far behind. I mean, you've had, you know, souls to the polls efforts for quite some time. Now, mind you now, they're being taken away in states like North Carolina when they've been very successful. But many Georgians knew that there might be some shenanigans, and so they really did go out and vote early uh, the week or two before the election. Now, I mean, obviously they were not necessarily prepared to vote on Election Day and realize that, you know, they would have machines but no cords. I mean, those are the types of things that on Election Day, you know, Election Day is so chaotic. But the person in charge of all of that is the Secretary of State. At the end of the day, it all falls at his feet. And I think part of the lawsuit from the Abrams camp is saying how coincidental it is that in some of the most African-American counties in Georgia, presumably, if you want to make assumptions that these would be Democratic voters, ergo Abrams voters, these are the voters that have broken machines, no machines, or machines with no courts. Cobb County, for instance, people were waiting, like, hours to vote this year uh, um, who came on Election Day. Yeah, and that's a form of voter suppression. I vote on the Upper West Side, and I vote in less than a minute, right? Because obviously the people on upper, of the Upper West Side have no stomach to wait in lines for hours upon hours. And so every year you get these stories like, oh, isn't it so great and democratic? People stood in line for five hours. So we have to ask ourselves, why does someone have to wait in line for five hours? People have lives to live and things to do, and they're trying to do their democratic and civic duty by participating in our electorate, which is one of our fundamental rights that's listed in the Constitution, but... It's clearly a big deal to certain people because since the history of our nation, <laughs> folks in charge have been trying to take it away from select groups time and time again. Chrissy, I know you've got a plane to catch. Um, what are you expecting this week? I know America, and so what I want to happen, what I think will happen, are not congruent. Um, I really do hope, though, that at least the democratic process prevails, if nothing else. I mean, we have to sort of protect our institutions. And right now, they're all bending under the whim of an executive that's just sort of like, you know what, to hell with, you know, what used to happen. I just want what I want. And so if Frank Kemp is the real winner of the state of Georgia, which would not be surprising. I mean, he's a Republican. He's a white male. Like, I get it. I don't think that, you know, I would be totally fine if all the votes were counted. And it's like Brian Kemp won. And more Americans in the state of Georgia wanted him to win over Stacey Abrams. That's fine. That's how democratic elections go. I've had plenty of elections where my candidate or the candidate that I supported either won or didn't win. However, we cannot, you know, set the precedent where we're midway counting. I just declare victory and we cut off the count and then I just have a judge certify it and I start working with, you know, the member of my party to transition. And it's a, it's a road to, you know, the destruction, I think, of the democratic process. I think a lot of people are having flashbacks in 2000 and realizing just how ridiculously unfair and possibly corrupt <laughs> the 2000 election was. F-A-Q. 
FAQ is brought to you by a grant from Civil, the new company reinventing journalism economics through blockchain. FAQ is headquartered at the McSilver Institute and recorded in a tenement apartment somewhere in downtown Manhattan. Our new producer reporter is Gwen Hogan, and our sound mixer and masterer, very patient man, is Adam Kamara. News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.